Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. I want to talk to you today about dual relationships and power with regards to leadership. When I shared uh, two podcasts around my biggest regrets, uh, my number one regret had to do with dual relationships. And uh, so today I want to actually talk to you about that. I, I felt like I couldn't move on without taking a podcast and exploring it further and more thoroughly. And so today I'm actually going to share with you a short portion with me reading from the audiobook of The Emotionally Healthy Leader on this topic. But let me frame why uh, I'm doing this and the section that I'm going to actually read to you, because I'm not going to read to you, of course, the whole chapter. The most powerful lesson I've learned uh, in 40 years of leadership has to do around the theme of dual relationships and power. In fact, it was the impetus that got me to write the Emotionally Healthy Leader book in the first place. And I spent by far more time and more drafts on this particular theme than any other in the entire book. It's rarely discussed in Christian circles among leadership, except when there's a serious abuse and a scandal. This kind of silence around dual relationships and power and leadership uh, leads to all kinds of negative consequences. Almost every church, every nonprofit, organization, team, and Christian community that I know, and I did a, an informal survey over years, bears deep scars and hurt due to the failure to steward the issue of power and dual relationships well. We, we underestimate how fragile uh, each of our churches uh, is and each nonprofit uh, each Christian parachurch ministry is. We're fragile ecosystems, we're, we're complex, and it can be quite confusing if not navigated well. That's why it requires such mature leadership, prudence, thoughtfulness, and care. Now, every, lead, every person on earth has power, and of course, every leader has power. The best description I know of power is this. Power is the capacity to influence. Very simple. Power is the capacity to influence. It was Richard Gula who wrote, power is what enables us to make things happen or not. In a sense, everyone has power, he writes, but we all do not have it to the same degree. Power as influence is always relative to our resources. And one of the most important self-examinations we can do is to name our sources of power for we're most at risk of misconduct when we minimize or ignore our power. And part of what I love about uh, Gula's statement is, is the implication that virtually everyone is a leader in a sense that to a greater or lesser degree, everyone has influence, which means everyone is power-full. And we all use that power for good or ill in, in our lives. The problem is that so few of us as leaders, and I'll put myself first in that, are aware of, let alone reflect on, the nature of our God-given power. So even if you've read The Emotionally Healthy Leader, I want to invite you, please listen to this short segment that I pulled out uh, from the audio version of the book where I read it around dual relationships and power. So whether you're jogging, walking, driving, whatever you're doing today, this is so nuanced, so challenging, so complex. I want to invite you to be open to the Holy Spirit and how he might be coming to you today and how you can better serve the people that you love and that God has given you. Now, I'm not going to address every scenario you might encounter, but I'm going to hopefully offer a few insights and gold nuggets uh, that I wish I had understood many years ago. And it will give you the core, I believe, of the essence of the challenge around dual relationships. And my sincere hope is that you'll ponder them and, and, and God will use it to help you carefully navigate this minefield with greater integrity than I did uh, 
especially my early years. Not just for your sake, but for the sake of your family, friends, ministry, and most importantly, the glory of Jesus in the world. So here it is. The most elegantly simple description of power I know is this. Power is the capacity to influence. As author Richard Hewlett writes, power is what enables us to make things happen or not. In this sense, everyone has power, but we do not all have it to the same degree. Power as influence is always relative to our resources. One of the most important self-examinations we can do is to name our sources of power, for we are most at risk of ethical misconduct when we minimize or ignore our power. Part of what I find compelling about Gula's statement is its implication that virtually everyone is a leader. To a greater or lesser degree, everyone has influence, which means that everyone is powerful, and we all use that power, well or poorly, for good or for ill. The problem is that so few leaders have an awareness of, let alone reflect on, the nature of their God-given power. As a result, some carelessly wield their power with aggression, exploiting it to their own advantage. They function as the proverbial bull in the china shop, careless and self-serving with their power. They are unaware of, or perhaps worse, unconcerned about, the impact they have on others or how others perceive them. Scripture offers us plentiful examples of such leaders, including King Saul and King Solomon. On the opposite extreme are the leaders who shrink back from exercising their power. Their reluctance to assert themselves leaves the door open to the wrong people stepping into the power vacuum, which causes all sorts of chaos. It is not uncommon for these ministries or churches with weak leaders to fit the following description of God's people from the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Judges 21, 25. In my years of teaching and mentoring leaders, I've seen just as much damage result from this second group, the leaders who are ambivalent and uncomfortable with their power. Perhaps it's because I identify with them. For these leaders, it somehow feels wrong and unbiblical to grab the reins and take charge because power implies privilege a higher social status, being above others. The thought of having power as a leader sounds detached and cold. So they prefer to deny or minimize the very real power they have. Some may even feel unworthy or afraid to exercise power, especially in God's name. As a result, they live in a fog, feeling powerless internally, yet responsible to exercise power to lead others. So let me say it again. We all have power. Pastors, staff leaders, ministry directors, board members, small group leaders, long-term members, donors, parents, musicians in the worship band, we all have power. The problem is that we do not understand where that power comes from, nor do we understand how to exercise it responsibly. Our understanding of power is incomplete and narrow. This is true for leaders who are power-hungry, and for those who avoid exercising power. Characteristics of Emotionally Healthy Power and Wise Boundaries A good test of a person's character is how they deal with adversity. But the best test of a leader's character is how they deal with power. If we want to use our power well as Christ followers, there are three things we must do. Identify and inventory our power. 
carefully steward our power so it comes under others, acknowledge and monitor dual relationships. Let's take a careful look at each of these three characteristics. We identify and inventory our power. Emotionally healthy leaders are keenly aware of the sources of their power, as well as the nuances in their use of power. One of the best things we can do to develop this awareness is to identify and inventory the power God has granted us. And by inventory, I mean we not only think about our power, we ponder it and own it. Before reading through the following list, I encourage you to grab a pad of paper or a journal. Then write down your responses as you consider the questions for each of the six categories of power. If you find it helpful to have an example, see power inventory examples on the following page. Positional power. What formal positions of influence has God entrusted to you? For example, small group leader, pastor, spouse of a leader, executive director, community organizer, CEO or CFO, greeter, teacher, board member, team leader, parent, etc. What privileges and opportunities does this position open up for you? Personal power. What unique gifts, skills, and assets has God given you? Consider your experiences, education, competencies, natural talent, and other abilities. How has God uniquely crafted your personality in a way that contributes to your ability to influence people? Think of your introversion or extroversion, your ability to attend to details, to cast an expansive vision, etc. God factor power. In what way or ways do you carry sacred weight with those in your church? workplace, family, and among friends? To what degree do people look to you for spiritual wisdom and counsel? Who are the people, inside and outside the church, who might perceive you as a spiritual authority who speaks for God? Projected power. What individuals and or groups might attribute power and authority to you because of what you represent as a leader? How much of that attribution of power to you comes out of their unmet or unresolved needs? Who might idealize you from afar, attributing to you a greater wisdom, holiness, or skill than you actually possess? Relational power. With whom and for how long have you built a relational history? People you have pastored, served, mentored, or walked with through life's challenges and transitions. Consider individuals, families, and groups. How does their vulnerability and trust in you influence their perceptions and expectations of you? Cultural power. How might your age, race, gender, ethnicity, or other cultural factors serve as a source of power or influence for you? How might this change from one group to the next in your setting? For example, different cultures and ethnicities may treat you differently. Young people may not attribute power to you. Older people, because of your position, may respect and heed your words without question. Before continuing, take a few moments to read back over your responses. What stands out to you about the nature of your power and the people with whom you have influence? For a few minutes, invite God to speak to you about your inventory. Thank Him for giving you the opportunity to influence others in His name. Ask for grace to steward your power well so that your life and leadership might be a gift to those you serve, enabling them to come more fully alive and flourish. Ten years ago, I found myself being courted by a few Christian publishers. My literary agent at the time, 
a wise woman with over 30 years of experience in publishing, set up meetings in three different cities for me to meet with the various publishers and consider their contract offers. In each place, I was treated very kindly, almost like a potential star. It was nice while it lasted. As the son of an Italian baker, it was also a strange experience for me, uncomfortable and intoxicating at the same time. On the last day of our trip, I asked my agent a question. You have been in this publishing business for a long time. You have represented some of the most popular Christian authors. What would you say is the greatest temptation I should be aware of? That's easy, she said. I can sum it up in one word. Entitlement. Some authors have a lot of influence after they become well-known. They change. They walk into a room, acting as if everyone owes them, and the world revolves around them. It makes them miserable to work with. I never forgot that conversation. I resolved from that point forward to treat every publishing door God opened for me as a sheer miracle of grace. Entitled leaders act as if the world revolves around them. Their thinking goes something like this. I've been blessed. I have gifts and influence. I have worked hard and deserve to be treated well. This is what I refer to as power over others' leadership. The opposite of an entitled leader is a grateful leader. Grateful leaders continually marvel at all they have received from God. But as a leader's sense of gratitude shrinks, their sense of entitlement grows in equal measure. While the world practices a power-over strategy, characterized by dominance and win-lose competitiveness, Jesus taught a power-under strategy, characterized by humility and sacrificial service. In the world, says Jesus, leaders throw their weight around. But it is not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, Mark 10, 42-43. While Jesus is the invisible God who holds all things together, Almighty, eternal, immortal, and infinite, he became human, temporal, mortal, and finite. Jesus demonstrated his power not by force or control, but by choosing to come under us, humbly washing feet and dying for our sins. He carefully stewarded his power. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Philippians 2, 6-7 The church is not a corporation. We are not corporate executives who might make tough decisions to get the job done. We are not CEOs implementing best practices in order to expand our impact or market penetration. The church is not our family business. Instead, we are the body of Christ, the temple of God, the new family of Jesus, the bride of Christ. As leaders, we are stewards of delegated power, gifted to us for a short time by God. The choice of the word steward is important. The church belongs to God, not to us. We must never forget that the power we exercise belongs to Him. Our power is given to us to come under people for their good, for them to flourish, not so we will look good. The failure to come under people with our power can take many different forms. Consider the story of Patrick and Ken. Two years ago, Patrick and his wife moved from New York to West Virginia so Patrick could take a position as a youth pastor in a rural church. 
Before the move, he had served as a volunteer youth ministry leader at First Assembly, a church in their home state of New York. During a recent trip back to New York to visit family, Patrick contacted Ken, First Assembly senior pastor, and asked if they could have lunch. Ken was initially reluctant because he and Patrick hadn't parted on the best of terms, but he was also curious and agreed to meet. When they met, Patrick surprised Ken by asking forgiveness for his lack of submission to authority and for his rebellious spirit when he served as First Assembly's youth leader. He described how the senior pastor at their church in West Virginia had confronted him and helped him see his blind spots and arrogance. Ken couldn't believe what he was hearing. He'd been relieved when Patrick moved to West Virginia because he was so difficult to manage. Patrick's inappropriate remarks and behaviors had caused Ken many a sleepless night, but he had never said anything. Why? Ken hates conflict and relational messes. But Patrick was now clearly a different person, broken, humble, and repentant. A few days later, in a conversation with me, Ken wondered if he should now take Patrick out to lunch and ask his forgiveness for never confronting these issues when Patrick was under his leadership. Note that Ken failed to exercise his God-given power to come under Patrick to love him well. He failed to serve Patrick, allowing his aversion to conflict to cause him to abdicate his power and authority. I advise Ken that I thought it would be good for his soul to take Patrick out for lunch in order to ask his forgiveness. One of the ways we know we are intentionally using our power to come under people is when we do something difficult and hard for us because it will benefit someone. This is what Ken should have done for Patrick, even though it might have cost him Patrick's approval or even their relationship. Another indicator I monitor in my own life to ensure I am using my power to come under others is to examine my heart. I watch to see if I am still grateful for the privilege to represent Jesus and have a level of influence in the lives of other people. Perhaps the best test I know for alerting me that I have strayed from a healthy use of power is when I resent people treating me like the servant I claim to be. We acknowledge and monitor dual relationships. Exercising power and setting wise boundaries in leadership can be complex, regardless of the setting. But the exercise of spiritual power, or the God factor, in the church and in other Christian organizations introduces additional complexities. Perhaps nothing is as complex for leaders as the challenge of navigating dual relationships with family and close relationships. Consider the following story in which this was ignored, resulting in a 12-year downward spiral in one church. Paul, a lawyer, had been chairperson of the board in his church for over 15 years. In that role, he effectively served as the boss for the lead pastor and the staff. At the same time, he was also best friends with Ben, the lead pastor. They enjoyed each other's company and routinely went out to lunch and attended sporting events together. The church was growing and all seemed to be going well until the day the board was informed that Ben had been caught kissing a woman in the church who was not his wife. Members of the board in the church felt betrayed. At that point, Paul felt compelled to assert his role as both supervisor and spiritual authority over Ben. This was what the church constitution mandated for the relationship between the board chairperson and the senior pastor, even if they hadn't previously operated that way in their friendship. 
Ben resented the sudden shift in their relationship, as well as the intrusion and forced accountability. He resigned, and he and Paul haven't spoken since. What happened, I asked Paul. You two spent so much time together. How did you miss what was happening with Ben? Well, he admitted, I really didn't miss it. What do you mean, I said. He flirted once in a while, Paul responded. I saw him cross a few minor lines, but I thought, who am I to challenge him? He was sloppy in other areas, too. His personal finances, even his preaching. But his gifts carried him. Even when he wasn't fully prepared when he preached, people couldn't tell the difference. But I could. Paul looked down at his coffee, deep in thought. There was a long silence, and then he said, Actually, the person I'm most mad at is me. I didn't do my job as an elder and chairperson. We were such close friends. That's why the discipline and restoration process went so poorly. What a massive mess. Paul found himself in a dual role, that of both friend and boss slash spiritual authority. This led to blurred boundaries and confusion around their relationship that couldn't survive the sudden shift in roles the crisis required. The Challenge of Dual Relationships A dual relationship is when we are more than one role in someone's life. We observe this, for example, when a small group leader builds her real estate business by soliciting members of her group, when a doctor becomes a patient's golfing buddy, when a pastor hires his son to work for him. When you go to a doctor, a lawyer, a therapist, a teacher, an accountant, or a professional coach, the relationship is meant to have certain boundaries. The professional offers you a service and you pay them for it. You each have just one role in the life of the other person. You don't go on vacation together. You don't go out for dinner that evening. You don't offer them advice for their personal problems. You have a one-role relationship in which the boundary lines are relatively clear. There is an implicit recognition of the unequal power in these relationships. They are the experts. You are the recipient of their services and expertise. The professional, for example, a doctor or a lawyer, must adhere to a code of ethics and laws in order to be licensed. Therapists are not to date their clients. To do so would be a violation, an abuse of the therapist's power. I do not believe it is healthy or biblical to try to entirely eliminate dual relationships from Christian leadership. Drawing rigid professional boundaries in a church or parachurch organization may well limit what God is doing. These boundaries simply need to be prudently and carefully monitored. Paul was in a dual relationship with Ben. They were friends, and as board chair, Paul was also Ben's supervisor. They felt the tension at times, but didn't have the language or relational maturity to talk about it. Paul's relationship with Ben was not equal. He was the chairperson of the board. Ben worked for the board. The board could fire Ben. Ben could not fire the board. When we find ourselves in a dual relationship, it is important to define the boundaries around our roles. Boundaries are like fences. They help us know where our yard ends and our neighbor's yard begins. With proper boundaries, we know what we are and are not responsible for. For example, in the situation with Paul and Ben, Establishing wise boundaries at the beginning would have involved talking openly about their differing roles and responsibilities at the church. They could have invited other board members into the dilemma, discussing potential conflicts of interest. Perhaps Paul could have stepped down as board chair or from the board altogether. 
they could have discussed the implications of their dual relationship at the beginning to ensure they exercised their power wisely. The responsibility to set a healthy boundary rests first with the leader, not with those he or she serves. Why? The leader has been given the greater power. Following through on this responsibility isn't easy. It requires self-awareness, thoughtfulness, the ability to have honest and clear conversations, and a healthy level of confidence and personal maturity. How do I know? Through my mistakes. Lots of mistakes. The following is one painful example. For years, I allowed myself to become like a father to Joan, our former youth pastor. Jerry and I invited her over for the holidays, had dinners together, and offered her lots of personal help to succeed in her job. Our girls admired and loved her. In the process, I became something of a surrogate father, pastor, and mentor, all rolled into one. She was deeply loyal and grateful. A time came, however, when things were not going so well in both her ministry and her personal life, and several members of the church board raised concerns. At that point, I needed to step in and assert myself as her supervisor. In order to remain on staff, she needed to make some significant changes in her life. At the time, I was unaware of how terribly confused our boundaries and roles had become. When I had the hard conversation with Joan about her performance, she felt hurt and betrayed. How could you treat me like this? How could you do this to me? She cried. My offer to find her another position with a new life fell on deaf ears. My betrayal of her felt too deep. I understand why. As far as she was concerned, I was her biggest cheerleader and champion the one older man in her life she could depend on if all else failed. I was the one who had invested years to help her grow from a position as an intern to an influential leader over a vital ministry. I was the pastor who loved her like God without conditions. I was not her boss. I was unaware of all this and sloppy with my power. She resigned. One of our daughters was a member of the youth group and found herself in the middle of that painful transition. She knew nothing of the board issues or the boundary violations I had allowed. She felt deeply hurt, and it took her years to recover. How many children of pastors and leaders have been needlessly hurt because of parents' lack of wisdom in the use of power and setting wise boundaries? It was unfair for me to have put Joan, our youth pastor, in that position. As her supervisor, I had much greater power in the relationship. I should have limited my mentoring and handed the mentoring of her to others. I also should have ensured that a serious job review and job evaluation was done for her as it was for other staff. Because I treated her like a member of my family, I allowed myself to have different expectations for her. In fact, this dilemma can be even more challenging when the dual relationship is with someone in our own family. The Challenge of Family Believe it or not, entire books have been written about the pros and cons of hiring family members in organizations. Some experts argue it is more productive and enriching for both the organization and family, particularly in dual career couples. For others, favoring family members is seen as a bad thing and organizations should not tolerate this practice because of fairness and justice issues, even if it achieves their objectives. There are many wonderful examples in history and in the contemporary church of family members working well together. 
In Scripture, we observe many family members serving together in leadership positions. Moses served as the senior leader, along with his siblings, Aaron and Miriam. Aaron and his sons served together in leadership as priests. David handed down leadership to his son Solomon, who handed it to his son. Peter led the twelve apostles, while Andrew, his brother, served on his leadership team. Brothers James and John were both on the same apostolic team. Scripture implies that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were business associates in the fishing industry in Capernaum. Priscilla and Aquila were a married couple apparently on staff together in their church. James, the brother of Jesus, led the Jerusalem church as described in the book of Acts. In each case, these were family members tied to one another by blood. Yet they were also gifted and called by God to serve together in leadership. To be sure, we have a few hints of problems, for example, disagreements among Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, also with David and his sons. But we don't know very much beyond that. On the other hand, we also have tragic examples of families and churches that were destroyed when one family had too much power. Some churches and organizations have had such bad experiences with multiple family members on staff that they now forbid it. Yet even though significant dangers and challenges exist in having family members serving together in leadership, it's my belief that Scripture clearly leaves the door open for this. If we allow this, we must work to protect everyone involved by openly discussing issues of power and dual relationships and establishing boundaries and checks and balances. A mature, disciplined, differentiated leadership will need to monitor the impact family members have on the health of the larger body to ensure that no lines get crossed that could be interpreted as favoritism or nepotism. Before Rich became lead pastor at New Life, we wanted to hire his wife, Rosie, as the director of our children's ministry. She was the most qualified person for the job, but the board openly talked about the potential risks. If things didn't work out with Rosie, we could lose both her and Rich. That was no small loss since Rich had begun the process to assume my role. We discussed that risk with the board and with Rich and Rosie. Eventually, the elders, as ultimate custodians of our culture and values, decided Rosie would report to the director of pastoral ministry, who would meet with the head elder once a year to report on her performance. It was understood the head elder would back the pastoral ministry director if he concluded at any point that she was no longer the right fit for the children's ministry director position. We hired her, believing we had the margin, capacity, and maturity to navigate that particular complexity. When family members are able to serve in leadership and it works well, it is amazing. When it doesn't work well, it is very bad and difficult to unravel. So like any decision, it must be carefully discerned and discussed. The challenge of close friendships. Let me repeat this. I do not believe it is healthy or biblical to try to eliminate dual relationships from Christian leadership. This applies not only to family members, but also to close friendships. These two need to be prudently handled and supervised. Navigating dual relationships and close friendships has been one of the painful blind spots in my leadership over the years. Sadly, I am not alone in this. Too many of us routinely violate appropriate and necessary boundaries in close relationships and then find ourselves deeply entangled in a painful situation. 
Friendships work best among equal peers with equal power. This balance is compromised when one person functions in a position of spiritual leadership or supervision of the other. Ethics scholar Martha Ellen Stortz has written an excellent description of the core qualities of friendship and how these conflict with Christian ministry and leadership. In what follows, I've summarized a few of the qualities of friendship she identifies. Choice. Friends choose each other. This means they don't choose other people. They exclude them. As leaders in a community, when we exclude people, we risk taking sides and inadvertently defining who is in while others are out. In the early years of our church, my executive assistant often commented on what she described as my favoritism toward my inner circle of friends. She said that I treated them differently. I dismissed her observations at the time, but she was right. Our friends have more access to us than other people, and this gives them greater influence than most other people with whom we serve. Equality. Friends are equal in power and status. As senior leader, I had doors open to me that others in my friendship circle did not. From vacation opportunities, from donors, to growth opportunities, along with the authority to hire and fire. As lead pastor, I could also open opportunities for my inner circle of friends at New Life that they could not open for me. Because of my particular mix of positional and personal power, all things were not equal in my friendships with those who were on staff. This inequality is one of the reasons dual relationship friendships may become confusing and problematic. Reciprocity. Friends give and receive equally. I attempted to maintain reciprocity in my friendships, but it was sometimes impossible. Because the friends in our inner circle had served with me through the challenges and stresses of leadership, a few of them wanted a pastor, their pastor, inviting me to let down my guard and share anything I wanted without holding back. The problem was that the difficult issues the board and I were discussing at the time, for example, weren't appropriate to share in a coffee chat at the local diner. In fact, they weren't appropriate to share with anyone who was not on the board. Friends give and receive equally, but I was intentionally holding back from my end. This created a larger and larger gap over time. Knowledge. Friends invite truthful self-disclosure. This especially applied to those for whom I was both pastor and friend. There were times when I wanted to do the same with them, but all things were not equal. Because of my positional power, my words carried extra weight. To share as openly and truthfully as some in our inner circle wanted me to do would have been imprudent and inappropriate. Had I critiqued them in the way they critiqued me, they would have been crushed. I remember, for example, receiving a lengthy, exhaustive critique of a spiritual formation retreat I had led, in which a number of my, quote, close friends, end quote, participated. An evaluation that did not include the things that went well category. We don't have the luxury of doing that to people who serve under us when we have more power than they do. Otherwise, we do more damage than good. When we as leaders give critique, our words need to be carefully chosen, sandwiched with positive affirmation, and given in a safe environment that protects people's dignity. I offer you these four characteristics of friendship as a framework to help you determine whether your dual relationships with friends meet these particular standards of friendship. Does all of this mean that I am opposed to senior leaders having close friends in their church? 
Absolutely not. But I will say that after more than two decades of ministry, I've seen many tragic endings. Only a few leaders are sufficiently self-aware and skilled enough to navigate the dangers wisely and well. I can testify that it is possible to do this, and I believe my relationship with Andrew, a faithful member of New Life, illustrates this well. I served as Andrew's pastor for many years, and we enjoyed each other's company. We also participated in a small group I led, and Jerry and I occasionally had dinner with him and his wife. On a hot summer day, for example, we would drive to their home and enjoy cooling relief in their pool. We talked about New York sports and his love for trains. Six or seven years into our friendship, Andrew was elected chairperson of our board of elders. At that point, he became my direct boss. I was expected to send him monthly reports. He led the board in regular evaluations of my performance. He watched over my character and integrity. He had power and authority to demote me, fire me, or grant me a raise. I could not demote, fire, or grant him a raise. I was the pastor of his family, and he was now my boss. We talked about our roles. We joked about not going on vacation with one another. We remained friendly and continued to enjoy each other's company, but our relationship changed. It was no longer equal. That's not to say that the relationship ended. Our respect for one another has grown over our 27 years together as a result of our willingness to talk openly about the changes in our relationship. Understanding those changes and acknowledging them has kept the boundaries of our relationship healthy and clear. At the same time, our love and appreciation for one another has only grown over the years. His term as both the board chair and as a board member will soon expire. It will be interesting to see how our relationship evolves from that point forward. I did not go into the challenge of family or close relationships nor how to do an inventory of your own power. For that, you'll need to go to the Emotionally Healthy Leader book. But take some time and ponder the cha- this chapter on power and wise boundaries and leadership slowly. It, it, again, it's not a comprehensive treatment of the issue. It will not answer all your questions or scenarios, but it will give you a great foundation to build upon or at least work through maybe thorny situations that you're finding that you are in today with a bit more clarity. So blessings to you. God bless you, everybody, and have a great day. 